Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Today is 12th day of Ukraine's resistance against Russian invasion. 7th of March 2022. We are sitting in Visegrad Inside office. My name is Wojciech Przybylski. Sitting next to me, Miles Mefden and Kamil Jarończyk. And we are discussing the weekly outlook and democratic security perspectives. Right after our discussion, there is a piece of, and not an interview, but a discussion we recorded during State of Hungary week-long conference in which uh, we hosted dozens of Hungarian speakers, um, experts, uh, ex-politicians, sitting diplomats, to explain the state of Hungary from multiple perspectives. And you will have a great conversation ahead of you to listen by Daniel Hegedush and uh, Dalibor Rohac, uh, the first one coming from German Marshall Fund, the other one from American Enterprise Institute, both deeply knowledgeable the situation in Hungary and the discussion is moderated by Victoria Sertult, international foreign uh, affairs editor at HVG, uh, the main weekly in Hungary, and our partner. So, gentlemen, Kamil, what are we going to talk about besides Ukraine? Yeah, well, of course, uh, everything is sort of uh, uh, going around the topic of Ukraine, but uh, but within the region, there have been quite a few uh, interesting uh, updates. Uh, one update from Belarus is that the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank Uh, Chinese-led development bank has actually suspended all business with Russia and Belarus, which sort of uh, makes it a little bit more of a gray area and ma- makes it seem that uh, China might not be as willing to th- go uh, to stand behind Belarus and Russia. But uh, what's in, uh, also as we as we've been focusing quite a lot at Fishgrad Insights on Hungary, um, there's uh, an, in, there's also another investment bank which is actually uh, centered in Budapest. Uh, Romania has actually made, and the Czech Republic has made steps to uh, move away from it. Uh, it's a holdover from the communist period. We've spoke about it before on this podcast. Um, but uh, when asked uh, about it, um, uh, the Hungarian authorities have said that they would prefer to continue to be a part of the Russian-led International Investment Bank, uh, but said on Thursday that it is yet unclear whether it will financially be able to do so. So this once again shows hun- the Hungarians' uh, um, unwillingness to sort of commit uh, any- anywhere, even with um, even though they're being portrayed as pro-Russian. It's uh, uh, not uh, the they're uh, not as gun ho as um, as others w- as other Russian allies are uh, within the world uh, but all of what is also interesting is in Slovakia how uh, the, we've been focusing quite a bit on Slovakia recently and their anti uh, NATO sentiments within the government within the opposition uh, and within the population but what has been interesting after now that the war has been going on for a while in uh, Ukraine that more than 77% of Slovaks consider Russia's invasion of Ukraine to be an act of aggression and uh, recent surveys uh, show that half of the population would agree uh, to station NATO troops in the country with 61% of people They, uh, thinking NATO membership is a good thing for Slovakia. That's a substantial shift away from uh, the NATO skeptic trend that Slovakian society was uh, uh, going towards. And of course, uh, uh, another uh, V4 country. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, we heard it during the beginning of the war when uh, things were, uh, when the EU was uh, 
uh, uh, changing its rhetoric quite a bit. We also heard uh, Borrell speak about uh, supplying jets to Ukraine, which was then quickly shot down by Poland's president uh, the next day, um, uh, saying that uh, that Poland wouldn't be supplying uh, uh, planes to uh, Ukraine. But uh, during this weekend, during Blinken's trip to Moldova, um, uh, there, there, he has been asked questions and he has uh, said that the United States is considering sending planes to Warsaw if Poland decides to transfer ownership of its 23 MiG-29s to Ukraine. Um, uh, one of the reasons why Poland might uh, be willing to um, send the MiG-29s is that uh, they can only be supplied through Russia, which currently is not supplying any spare parts uh, to uh, their military hardware to NATO. So the, the MiG-29s sadly or, you know, um, maybe, maybe fortunately, uh, will not be able to be used soon because of the lack of spare parts. So it's a, you know, give it or lose it situation. And the U.S. has sweetened the deal a bit, uh, saying that uh, if Poland was to not have MiG-29s, it would supplement uh, these, uh, these airplanes with U.S. airplanes, such as refurbished F-16s, F-15s. Um, there, there have been even rumors of 35s, but uh, that's completely uh, not... Uh, not um, not substantiated at all, but uh, but uh, the thing is that uh, it would make sense now for Poland to uh, change uh, its air force from these old obsolete technologies to more NATO compatible ones, which also bears a lot of risks uh, related to first of all transfer of those planes in a way that they are not flown as Polish planes or they are not flown as mil- part of military operation from airstrips in Poland but uh, also if transported on the ground, how to avoid a possible, uh, possible uh, attack um, on such sensitive cargo. So there are possibilities and risks, and this is in the, in the eye uh, of, of the conflict, one of the uh, few possibilities how West could even further boost uh, Ukraine capacity to, um, to control the skies, to, to at least to have a contested airspace, and provide security to civilians as well as some military operations. So I think this is very important development, something to watch and and closely observe. But let me go back one step to what you mentioned about Hungary. It is very interesting, worrying. Actually, it is alarming. Viktor Orban is in the given context still playing uh, sort of uh, a little game as if it was an empire, as if it was still uh, wouldn't matter really, you know, wh- wh- where is the uh, where where the ethics of um, of this situation is, and he would uh, trade and deal with everyone as his policy and foreign policy has been. This is going to be explained in a conversation you'll hear right after our part. But also, he continues to accuse Poland, for instance, of. Uh, meddling with geopolitical interests of Russia. And uh, in an interview that we also quote in the weekly outlook, he also says that Hungary has been uh, has been uh, um, caught in a geopolitical crossfire as if he did not belong to NATO, as if he did not belong to EU communities of values uh, committed to democracy. And if he simply wanted, to signal to Russia, hey, I'm still here, your friend, keep maintaining cheap gas uh, and uh, atomic power, uh, which Russia is contracting to to expand in, in, in Hungary, 
because I want to win the upcoming elections. And I think the moral judgment, moral assessment of what is uh, uh, Hungary doing now is going to be extremely important also in the coming elections on the 3rd of April, because it would not be for the first time that Hungary trying to play uh, a failed new imperial uh, politics, just like 100 years ago, stands on the wrong side of history and uh, then uh, may pay a very heavy price as a society, not only its leader. But speaking of leaders, I think we have an interesting interview to discuss and show uh, and explain and, and advertise in a way to our listeners, Miles. Great, thank you, thank you. <clears throat> so on Friday, we published a very necessary and timely piece that sort of gives a larger psychological explanation of Vladimir Putin and essentially uh, following all of the developments that are happening um, with him and what you generally can see a lot in Western media headlines or uh, discussions that a lot of pundits have of he's mentally ill, he's crazy, etc. So what we did is um, we had an interview with uh, Roman uh, Kechur. He's the president of the Ukrainian Confederation of Psychoanalytic Psychotherapies. And in this, he sort of argues that the West's attempts to sort to basically rationalize Moscow's moves uh, really misses misses the point. So he pleads with our audience that Putin is going to continue to do more and more evil things. He will kill people. There is no stopping him, and to rationalize his actions at this point is just futile. So we ask Kuchar many questions. Is Putin really mentally ill? Will he be able to actually press the nuclear button? And so forth. So of course, Kachur goes on to, to sort of explain that the West doesn't really understand Putin. Sure, it understands that Putin is evil, but you know this is something that Kachur and other Ukrainians have been saying for eight years now, right? Both their presidents were saying this. All of their ministers were saying this. All their adequate politicians have been telling Westerners that Putin um, that Putin is evil, but Ukrainians were were essentially told that they need to understand Putin. They need to understand his insults. They need to think about his position. That there are so many different psychological complexes, um, and instead trade with Putin, cooperate, negotiate cheap gas, and. Kuchar just kind of points out, of course, it's it's good that we all finally understand what Ukrainians have understood for, for quite some time, that Putin, that Putin is not subject to rational logic. He's guided by other matters. And <clears throat> where does this evil actually come from? What is he guided by? How is he built? These are all the questions that we answer in in this piece. So please read this timely timely piece to to find out a bit more about this. I find it fascinating personally, very, very moving, also ethical argument uh, from um, from Ketchmeyer, who, who says it is unethical to consider even Putin uh, mentally ill, because how would that compare with people who are actually mentally ill yeah, with for what they're doing with, with his patients? Of course, that's his personal. I mean, this yeah. is his personal ethics as a professional, but uh, in a larger, you know, having a larger picture, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people, especially during pandemic, that sought psychological assistance, and none of them 
launch an air and missile uh, indiscriminate offensive against Ukrainian people because they had some problem. That interview has been also uh, enabled and has been published in English on our site thanks to support and help of Oksana Forosina, our uh, Machin Krul fellow, and has been in translated um, into English by Oksana uh, Muzichuk, has been first published in uh, zbruts.eu as zbruc.eu, consider supporting a recommended site, it's a Ukrainian site from Lviv, publishing a lot of great stuff on deep culture. And um, it's uh, published on our site in English. Uh, it's going to be published in other languages thanks to the extended network of our cooperation. We think it's simply important to, to understand it. Like to understand many other things, uh, Filip Konopczynski, excellent uh, analysis and account of what the left in the world needs to understand through also the prism of Central Eastern European uh, dynamics. So all of that, um, I think may summarize for the time being uh, our first part of the podcast and now invite you to 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 listen to uh, to the parts of the conversation we have held uh, last week and if you're interested to to listen to all of them uh, please subscribe uh, and on Visegrad Insight there is a post with all the videos and the key quotes takeaways uh, from State of Hungary conference from last week. First of all, I would like to introduce myself. My name is Victoria Sherdult, and I'm a journalist for the Hungarian magazine HVG. And as such, I live in Hungary. But uh, And this gives me quite an insight into what's happening in Hungary now. But uh, fortunately, our two speakers today have uh, a further advantage of seeing things a bit from further afar. Uh, and uh, so such as such, I would like to ask... Uh, Daniel Hegedus, the Transatlantic Fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, and uh, Dalibor Rohatch, Senior Fellow of the American Enterprise Institute, to give just a short introduction uh, on the topic. And uh, the grand rules of, uh, of our panel should be, we'll have a 30-minute uh, introduction and uh, discussion, and then afterwards we'll have uh, 30 minutes for the audience. So if you have any questions, you can write it down in the chat box and I will probably read them out. And um, I thought of an alphabetical order. So if Daniel would like to start with his introduction, then I give the floor to him. Thank you so much, uh, Victoria. Wojciech, dear colleagues, uh, thank you for having me in, in such a great panel. It's it's great to see so many good friends uh, uh, in the call now. Um, if you allow me in my introductory statement, I will focus on the foreign policy of the Orban regime, covering practically the word alliances uh, in the event's title. And, uh, and I'm going to briefly introduce Hungary's post-2010 multivectoral foreign policy and, and tries to answer three different questions in my contribution. The first, that in what sense is Hungary's multivectoral foreign policy different from other Central and Eastern European countries' economic and foreign policy openings to the global partners? The second, that what role does this multivectoral foreign policy play in the overall functioning of the Orban regime? And the third question, that what does the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and the subsequent tectonic shifts in NATO and the European Union mean for the Hungarian foreign policy? and whether we can 
expect a kind of genuine U-turn back to a kind of firm Euro-Atlantic commitments in the next couple of weeks or months. So starting with the first question, why can we call the foreign policy strategy of the Orban regime multivectoral? And, and how does it differ from opening attempts of other countries in the Central European region? Um, after the 2008 economic crisis, it was a general trend among Central and Eastern European countries to diversify their foreign trade and make their exports less dependent uh, from the EU internal market. And of course, that is also true for Hungary as well. It uh, didn't start with, uh, with the Eastern opening. Hungary's 2008 foreign relations strategy, which was adopted two years before Prime Minister Orban came to power, already announced the need to diversify Hungarian foreign trade, decrease Hungary's export dependency from the EU's internal market, and the necessity to strengthen Hungary's export position on the global and Eastern markets. Orban's famous 2011 Eastern opening strategy only reiterated that goal. And it was practically just a kind of new PR campaign for, for the very same foreign policy substance. Um, however, uh, as, uh, as Foreign Minister Peter Balazs already explained, the Eastern opening was an obvious failure. Uh, as, as he underlined, if we take a look on the internal international trade and especially export figures, Hungary was not able to see uh, uh, we are not able to see any sign of uh, successful diversification or, or increasing Hungary's export uh, to, the, to the different Eastern markets. Hence, it is fair to argue that reaching out to export markets was not the main driver or the key characteristics of Hungary's multivectoral foreign policy, at least definitely not if we focus on, uh, on the output level. Um, the Hungarian approach to the authoritarian global powers like Russia or China differs in three distinct characteristics from the seemingly similar outreach attempts of neighboring countries like Poland's initial flirt with China or the Russia and China friendly policies uh, of the former uh, Slovak uh, government of Robert Fico. And the first difference is that the, the Orban regime offered, uh, offered Hungary as a geopolitical hub and springboard for Russia and China in strategic sense. And therefore, it also compromised both Hungarian national security and EU and NATO interests. The country became a safe haven for, for Russian and Chinese intelligence. It hosts the Russia-controlled International Investment Bank. It will host the Fudan University campus. And, uh, and the country also contributed, uh, as uh, Foreign Minister Balazs mentioned, to connectivity projects with high geopolitical importance for, for authoritarian players like the Belgrade Budapest Railway Line. Furthermore, Hungarian diplomacy became a firm representative of Russian and Chinese positions, made it be the echoing of the Chinese narrative in the 2016 South China Sea arbitration case, blocking EU foreign policy positions uh, uh, regarding Hong Kong and or Xinjiang, and also repeatedly offering diplomatic red carpet for, for Vladimir Putin. And even if it's a matter of fact that Hungary never blocked EU sanctions against Russia, the possibility of a Hungarian veto was always an important insecurity factor in the EU decision-making. The second difference is that in contrast to the other Central and Eastern European countries, ties to Russia, China, or other countries like Azerbaijan or Turkey, 
have had an important layer of strategic corruption in the case of Hungary, and the emphasis is on the word strategic. While with the exception of, of some Chinese foreign direct investment, uh, the real economy haven't really profited from these relationships, Orban's cronies have. Strategic corruption is one key rationale behind the foreign credit finance mega projects like the Pochtu nuclear power plant, the Belgrade Budapest Railway Line, or the Fuden University. But strategic corruption also has had other forms, uh, like, for example, the MET gas trading scheme, if, if you are remembering that from the years uh, before 2015. And the third difference is that, in contrast to other Central and Eastern European countries, although Poland might be in this respect a kind of ex exception, the regime of Prime Minister Orban created a domestic and international narrative that challenged the very fundaments of Hungary's existing Western alliance uh, network. And in that regard, Hungary actively contributed to the global authoritarian narrative, which questioned the viability and the moral fundaments of the European integration and, and the transatlantic uh, alliance as we know them today. So the Orban regime hasn't simply acted as a kind of a free rider in the Euro-Atlantic alliance. It acted as a kind of parasite. It enjoyed the benefits of the country's EU and, and NATO membership, while it weakened these organizations through supporting the agenda of their authoritarian rivals, Russia and China, and offered these great powers geopolitical benefits. And against that background, that arguments uh, can be called the Hungarian foreign policy multivectoral, even if the country is officially firmly rooted in the European Union and NATO. So coming to my the second question, what has been the role of this multivectoral foreign policy in Hungary's autocratization? They went hand in hand with each other, and the multivectoral foreign policy was an important enabling factor of autocratization. Hungary's, Hungary's democratic demise brought the country in increasing conflict with the European Union and the United States. And one aspect that contributed to the EU's inability to punish and sanction Hungary's autocratization process was the leverage Orban was able to exert over the European Union with the help of its foreign policy. Through its constant reproachment to Russia and, and China, he demonstrated or at least made the impression that Hungary has other strategic options available if relations with Brussels may grow unsustainably conflict-laden. And there was a years-long discussion among politicians and experts uh, in, at EU level whether Russia and China could provide appropriate grants, financial supports uh, for Hungary in case of a potential suspension of the cohesion funds or, or whether the threat of Hungary exiting the European Union is real. These debates were the consequences of Orban's multivectoral foreign policy, and these debates won the Hungarian Prime Minister important years to further misuse EU funds without a credible threat of EU sanctions. So Hungary was able to challenge EU and NATO norms because of the perception of its other strategic options, and this perception was created by, by this multivectoral foreign policy. And uh, very briefly coming uh, to the third question, uh, 
which is that homey Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine impact Hungarian foreign policy in the future. I think we were able to witness surprising developments, which seemed to be implausible even a week ago. Hungary supported all EU sanction measures, only with minor delays. After some hesitation, Prime Minister Orban condemned the Russian aggression, and it became a main mantra of the Hungarian foreign policy that it shares the joint EU position, whatever that position may be. And against that background, several experts and analysts raised the question whether we see a kind of genuine U-turn in the Hungarian EU and foreign policy uh, under the, the pressure exerted by the Russian aggression. And my answer is that I don't think so, for two good reasons. The first is that because even in the given circumstances, Hungary plays a protracted balancing game. Indeed, it supported the EU sanctions, but refuses to provide military aid for Ukraine. Hungary is the single country among the Visegrad states which, which denies military aid. And, uh, and also prohibited, uh, Prime Minister Orban also prohibited the use of Hungarian transport routes to, uh, to deploy military aid into Ukraine. Hungarian media outlets close to the government also continue echoing Russia-friendly narratives and disinformation. And all that factors and developments underline that Budapest still tries to keep as cordial as possible relations with Moscow. Um, and the second reason because uh, why I don't think that a U-turn is, uh, is possible is uh, that such a U-turn is impossible and unimaginable without a U-turn in domestic policy. Orban cannot admit in the election campaign that his uh, Russia policy has been a single huge 12 years long strategic mistake. Among his hardcore supporters, Orban is believed to be infallible. Destroying this myth would not only cause confusion in the electoral base, but could also easily pose further uncomfortable questions. If the cuddling with the autocrats was a failure, his confrontational approach vis-a-vis -vis the European Union and other Western partners might have been rather unwise as well. Practically, the whole worldview of the Fidesz universe is at stake in the middle of the election campaign. And although in the coming months, uh, the EU will be preoccupied to keep its unity on Russia, the conflict points, the existing conflict points uh, in the EU-Hungary relation won't vanish either. To avoid the questions, what will happen with the suspended recovery funds uh, or the rule of law mechanism, Orban would need to redemocratize his regime. But he won't do that for very obvious reasons. And if the autocratization-induced conflict uh, with the European Union persists, Orban simply must keep its multivectoral foreign policy as well. Of course, he will try to keep a lower profile now than he used uh, to do that over the past 12 years. But simply for structural reasons, I think there is no hope for a genuine U-turn in the Hungarian foreign policy until Prime Minister Orban uh, is in power. And I will finish with uh, with that word and, and argument and uh, over to you, Victoria. Those were some quite uh, strong last words. 
in your introduction. And uh, before I ask any questions, which I have plenty of them, I would like to give the floor to Dalibor because I saw he was nodding all throughout your speech. So I would like to ask him whether he agrees that uh, there's this U-turn uh, of the Ormai government in the past few days was actually not genuine, or is there something else that we see in the background? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Victoria, and it's great to be with all of you. And I'm afraid I'm going to just echo some of some of Daniel's earlier earlier points in in his uh, from from his excellent overview. I would like to preface this conversation uh, by confessing that. I have always harbored a bit of a dislike for the notion of connectivity, which is one of those European buzzwords that, you know, does more to obfuscate rather than clarify things, right? There are all sorts of academic definitions of connectivity. Uh, I'm just going to cite one, flows of globalization through strategic investments in infrastructure. The EU is, is obviously using connectivity to refer to networks that bring you know, firms, places, countries closer together, and and the connectivity agenda is, is sort of built as a sort of response, as a values based response to to China's Belt and Road Initiative. But I think it's, it's it's very often useful to just just bring the conversation down the notch to to to, to clarify it and 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 just make it simpler. And I think Daniel has done a good job doing exactly that. And and so so what I would like to do is to really talk about you know what hungary's closest economic partners are you know in in real terms in sort of data driven terms and and what you know government hungarian government's actions insinuate those closest partners are and i think there is a there is a just just a glaring disconnect between 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 those two so first of all just just some you know basic basic facts uh Hungary is an economy which is tightly integrated with the West. It's tightly integrated with the European Union. There are obvious reasons for that. The, the sort of most basic one is, is the fact that economies that are closer together geographically tend to trade more, and economies that are bigger tend to trade more. Right? The sort of simple gravity equation explains you know, most of the, the variation in international trade. That's a very striking pattern at a time when, when uh, you know, transport costs and costs of information have fallen dramatically across the world. Uh, we still tend to trade more and have more economic interactions with people who are closer to us. You don't build value chains that span from the Netherlands to Australia because you know, even in the 21st century, that would mean waiting for, you know, four weeks to get any shipment, etc. So we just trade with our neighbors and we trade with economies that are, that are big. And, and Hungary is no exception. And, and the sort of idea that there are somewhere, somehow, somewhere these unexploited opportunities waiting to be sort of picked by, by clever uh, foreign policy outreach, I think has, that, that has always been an illusion. So, you know, you look at Hungarian exports, uh, these are, I think, 2020 data, uh, you know, $33 billion to Germany, $6.4 billion to Slovakia, $6.3 billion to Italy. Those are largest export destinations in 2020. Uh, exports to China are lower than exports to Ukraine in 2020 data. Uh, exports to Russia are lower than exports to Serbia 
right? So, so, so this idea that like these are you know important export markets for, for, uh, for, for 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 Hungary, and that can be dismissed out of hand. Uh, the notion that uh, these are also potentially important sources of investment flows. I don't think that the evidence bears the doubt very convincingly. Maybe you can make a sort of an argument of that sort about about China, certainly not about Russia. Uh, China is, um, and this, so this might be this might be slightly dated now, but in 2020 it accounted for less than 2.8 percent of the total FDI stock in world stock in 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 in, in Hungary, Russia. Uh, was at about 1.2% of the total inward investment stock, roughly the same as the Czech Republic, country of you know 10 million people. Uh, 70% of Hungary's inward FDI stock is from European European countries, 23% from from Germany. And you look at you know look at other Asian economies, for example, South Korea, India, Japan. I mean, those are bigger investors. In, in 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 Hungary uh overall than than either China or Russia uh and not not to speak about Canada and the US right which which are uh you know uh, several fold uh and have several fold larger investment stocks so so it's very you know as, as Daniel said it's very hard to explain this this outreach and 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 going out of one's way to accommodate Russian and Chinese interests in Central Europe simply by by economic economic arguments. Uh, and, and I think there is something else going on. Um, there is an ideological affinity, if you will. Uh, there are material interests of people connected to the to the government. In the case of China, yes, it's fair to say that the outreach to China predates the Orban era. Uh, goes back to a time when you know many countries were flirting with this idea that uh, that the Chinese regime, following the period of liberalization, uh, you know, would somehow try to integrate itself in the in the global economy. This really was before the sort of Xi Jinping era started in the earnest with the economic nationalism and 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 and, and the revisionism that that really has defined most of the previous years. Uh, I think you know when you look though to go back to 2011 time when uh, some of these first prime ministerial summits with with China were organized in Hungary. You already have uh, you know Viktor Orbán saying that uh, the Communist Party regime succeeded because it was not dominated by that Western liberal idea that fiddling with the books is the best way to get the best economic indicators. Their work is the foundation. That's a you know quote from the prime minister. So so there is a sort of striking you know consistency in his thinking. It seems and at the time, okay, you could say uh, there might be some sort of real deals taking place. Uh, Huawei, I think, set up its logistics headquarters for in the entire you know European continent in Hungary uh, at, in in 2011. You had the large uh, large investment in. And I'm going to mispronounce the the, the company's name, Borschot Chem, chemicals chemicals manufacturer worth 1.8, 1.6 uh, billion dollars. Uh, but since then, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's very hard to sort of point to specific investment projects that would be like economically sustainable, that would be profitable on their on their own merits, that would not have the government directly involved, uh, and 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 so. 
So I think it's you know it's fair to say, with the benefit of hindsight, that uh, this Chinese economy outreach through you know 17 plus one or 16 plus one through these various other formats, you know, has been largely a scam. And I think it, it people in other countries are seeing through it. I mean, you know, Milos Zeman in the Czech Republic was was a was a you know, big promo- proponent of, of, of Chinese economic interest in Central Europe. Uh, massive promises were made about Chinese investment, these sort of uh, high-profile decisions to, you know, get Chinese involved in a, in a brewery, in a, in a football club, to get a stake in, in the Czech Airlines, etc. were made. It's, it's just none of that really borne any economic fruit whatsoever. Uh, yet, Viktor Orban, you know, continue to call Hungary a pillar of of the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, you know, you had you had these extraordinary steps like 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 this debate about Fudan University last year, which, if it were to go ahead, would involve spending Chinese finance spending by Hungarian government that would exceed the entire budget of all public universities combined. I mean, it's 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 just it's just extraordinary, and and obviously as. As Daniel said, this has affected Hungary's posture on, on, on various policies that have to do with China, uh, not only within the European Union, where, let, let's face it, um, you know, these, these various sort of, you know, the council taking a position on human rights abuses or, or the parliament issuing a resolution might not be terribly consequential, uh, but, but, but still all of them were sort of systematically sabotaged or attempted at being sabotaged by by the Orban government but, but what is striking is that like this has poisoned even the relationship between Orban and and the Trump administration right like sort of this was this was this was a great opportunity for for the Hungarian government to 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 sort of strengthen the transatlantic link at the time when uh when most of Europe was sort of un, un, unsure about what to do yet you know, Peter Siarto gave uh, Mike Pompeo the middle finger when 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 he came out with this in- initiative to to get Huawei out of out of Central Europe's uh, future 5G network. So so this idea that um, and I've heard this a lot from from sort of pro Fidesz commentators, pundits that 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 it's you know for a small country in the heart of Europe it's important to play it to all sides a little bit to to have a balanced approach you you know make a little bit you know some concessions here and some concessions there nobody has too much leverage over you uh i think the the evidence points that that's a really stupid thing to do in a in a world especially if you are a small central european country i mean you need to belong somewhere you need to have partners that have trust in you and that are willing to come to your rescue hungary is now in a situation in which it has, is very quickly running out of genuine friends and 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 i don't think you know that's a, that that's a good thing from from sort of the the, the standpoint of, of of hungary's hungary's national interests and obviously russia is 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 as a story that 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 only compounds uh, this this argument. I mean, you can't make a plausible argument about how deepening economic links to Russia will provide substantial material interest to to to, to Hungarians. I mean, Russia, really, in, in in the economic sense, is is a is not a country. It's a petrol station with nukes, right? Masquerading as a as a as a as a as a, as a, as a first world economy, it, and 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 there really is no evidence for 
you know, like any of that bearing any 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 benefits. And and I think it's you know, in spite of this most recent spin of the Hungarian government over over Ukraine last week, uh, it is worth noting that uh, the the relationship between Hungary and Ukraine was consistently fraught over the years, uh, placing Hungary at odds with many of its NATO NATO allies. Right, the the effort to uh, to sort of stop Ukraine from participating in NATO summits altogether, uh, particularly in 2018 in, in Brussels. Uh, in 2014, after Russia cut uh, gas supplies to Ukraine, I think Hungary followed suit uh, for, 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 for a while. You know, then there's this whole story about you know, the nuclear power in the aftermath of, 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 of Russia's invasion uh, last week, right? It, the, the Paksh project is supposed to to, to to go ahead. There is the story about you know Russian arms dealers being extradited to Russia, not to the United States, in spite of you know the the the, the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice filing uh, the request first. Uh, then there is this incredible story of the International Investment Bank, sort of phony quasi multilateral lending agency, which probably is a platform for Russian espionage and. And 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 Russian interests. And I suppose a few weeks ago, you know, I'd be willing to have a debate with with somebody from the sort of pro fide side about the merits and demerits of a multi-vector foreign policy. Uh, but I think I think the and and and, and sort of these these balancing acts that that the Dorban was supposed to supposedly involved in. But I suppose at this stage, when you know your neighbor and 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 I'm you know from Slovakia, our neighbor is being shelled and bombed by 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 thermobaric bombs this 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 idea that that argument should be indulged in any way uh is 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 to me unfathomable and and i do believe that one silver lining of this might be that 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 you know this this approach to 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 foreign policy and to economic diplomacy uh you know will be discredited in central europe for at least a generation that is certainly my hope and uh, obviously, it is up to the Hungarian people to to make decisions about whom they want to, you know, run the country for the next four years. Uh, but I do think it is a factor that might, uh, you know, move the 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 uh, election campaign and and the run up to the election in a in a direction that that few people expected until last uh, Wednesday. So I'll stop here for my initial remarks and I look forward to, to the conversation 